Chapter 19 of The Protector by Harold Bindloss. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Protector by Harold Bindloss. Chapter 19 Vane Foresees Trouble. Nairn was sitting at a writing table when Vane entered his room, and after a few questions about his journey, he handed the younger man one of the papers that lay in front of him. "'It's a report from the mine,' he said. Vane carefully studied the document. "'It only brings us back to our last conversation on the subject,' he remarked when his host glanced at him inquiringly. "'We have the choice of going on as we are doing, or extending our operations by an increase of capital. In the latter case, our total earnings might be larger, but I hardly think there would be as good a return on the money actually sunk. Taking it all round, I don't know what to think, but if it appeared that there was a moral certainty of making a satisfactory profit on the new stock, I should consent." Nairn chuckled. A moral certainty is not a very common thing in mining. "'I believe Horsefield's in favor of the scheme. How far would you trust that man?' Vane inquired. "'About as far as I could fling a bull by the tail. The same thing applies to both of them.' "'He has some influence. He'd find supporters.' Nairn saw that the meaning of his last remark, which implied that he had no more confidence in Jessie than he had in her brother, had not been grasped by his companion, but he did not consider it judicious to make it plainer. Instead, he gave Vane another piece of information. Horsefield and Winter work into each other's hands. But Winter has no interest in the Claremont. Nairn smiled sourly. He holds no shares in the mine, but there's not much in the shape of mineral developments yon man has not an interest in. Since you do not seem inclined to yield Horsefield a point or two, it might pay you to watch the pair of them. Vane, who was aware that Winter was a person of some importance in financial circles, remained silent for a couple of minutes. Now, he said at length, Every dollar we have in the Claremont is usefully employed and earning a satisfactory profit. Of course, if we put the concern on the market, we might get more than it is worth from investors, but that doesn't greatly appeal to me. It's unnecessary to point out that a director's interest is not invariably the same as that of his shareholders, Nairn rejoined. It's an unfortunate fact but I'd be no better off if I only got the same actual return on a larger amount of what would be watered stock. There's sense in that. I'm not urging the scheme. There are other points against it, answered Nairn. Well, said Vane, I'll go up and look round the mine, and then we'll have another talk about the matter. They changed the subject but Vane walked back to his hotel in a thoughtful frame of mind, and finding Carroll in the smoking-room related his conversation with Nairn. "'I'm a little troubled about the situation,' he concluded. "'The Claremont finances are now on a sound basis, 
but it might, after all, prove advantageous to raise further capital, and in such a case we would, perhaps, lie open to attack. Nairn's inclined to be cryptic in his remarks, but he seems to hint that it would be advisable to make Horsfield some concession, in other words, to buy him off. "'Which is a course you have objections to?' "'Yes,' said Vane. "'Very decided ones. "'I think that in a general way Nairn's advice is sensible. "'Where mining and other schemes are floated, "'there are men who make a good living out of the operations. "'They're trained to the business. "'They've control of the dollars. "'And when a new thing's put in the market, "'they consider they've the first claims on the pickings.' "'You needn't elaborate the point.' Vane broke in impatiently. "'You made your appearance in this city as a poor and unknown man with a mind to sell,' Carroll went on. "'Disregarding tactful hints, you laid down your terms and stuck to them. Launching your venture without considering their views, you did the gentlemen I've mentioned out of their accustomed toll, and I've no doubt that some of them were indignant.' It's a thing you wouldn't expect them to sanction. Now, however, one who has probably others behind him is making overtures to you. You ought to consider it a compliment, a recognition of ability. The question is, do you mean to slight these advances and go on as you have begun? That's my present intention, Vane answered. Then you needn't be astonished if you will find yourself up against a determined opposition by and by, said Carroll. I think my friends will stand by me. Vane looked at him steadily. Thanks. I've merely been pointing out what you may expect, and hinting at the most judicious course, though the latter's rather against my natural inclinations. I'd better add that I've never been particularly prudent, and the opposite policy appeals to me. If we're forced to clear for action, we'll nail the flag to the mast. It was spoken lightly, because the man was serious, but Vane knew he had an ally who would support him with unflinching staunchness. "'I'm far from sure it will be needful,' he replied and they talked about other matters until they strolled off to their rooms. They spent the next day in the city, where Vane was kept occupied, after which they sailed once more for the north, and pushed inland, until they were stopped by snow among the ranges, without finding the spruce. The journey proved as toilsome as the previous one, and both the men were worn out when they reached the coast. Vane was determined on making a third attempt, but he informed Carroll that they would visit the mine before proceeding to Vancouver. They had heavy rain during the voyage down the strait, and when, on the day after reaching port, the jaded horses they had hired plodded up the sloppy trail to the mine, a pitiless deluge once more poured down on them. The light was growing dim among the dripping firs, and a deep-toned roar came throbbing across their shadowy ranks. By and by, Vane, who was leading, turned and glanced back at Carroll. "'I've never heard the river so plainly before,' he said. 
It must be unusually swollen. Since the mine was situated on a narrow level flat between the hillside and the river, Carroll understood the anxiety in his comrade's voice, and urging the wearied horses they pressed on a little faster. It was almost dark when they reached the edge of an opening in the firs and saw a cluster of iron-roofed wooden buildings and a tall chimney-stack, in front of which the unsightly ore-dump extended. Wet and chilled and worn out as the men were, there was comfort in the sight, but Vane noticed that a shallow lake stretched between him and the buildings. On one side of it there was a broad strip of tumbling foam, which rose and fell in confused upheavals and filled the forest with the roar it made. Vane drove his horse into the water, and dismounting among the stumps before the ore dump, found a wet and soil-stained man awaiting him. A long trail of smoke floated away from the iron stack behind him, and through the sound of the river there broke the clank and thud of hard-driven pumps. "'You have got a big head of steam up, Salter,' he said. The man nodded. "'We want it. It's taking me all my time to keep the water out of the workings. Leave your horses. I'll send along for them, and I'll show you what we've been doing after supper.' "'I'd sooner go now, while I'm wet,' Vane answered. They went down into the mine. The approach looked like a canal and they descended the shallow shaft amidst a thin cascade. The tunnel they reached slanted, for the load dipped, and the lights that twinkled here and there among the timbering showed shadowy, half-naked figures toiling in water which rose well up their boots. Further streams of it ran in from fissures, and Vane's face grew grave as he plodded through the flood with a lamp in his hand. He spent an hour in the workings, asking Salter a question now and then, and afterwards went back with him to one of the sheds, where he dressed in dry clothes and sat down to a meal. When it was over and the table had been cleared, he lay in a canvas chair beside the stove, in which resinous billets snapped and crackled cheerfully. The deluge roared upon the iron roof. The song of the river rose and fell, filling the place with sound, and now and then the pounding and clanking of the pumps broke in. Vane examined the sheets of figures Salter handed him. Then he carefully turned over some of the pieces of stone the table was partly covered with. There's no doubt those specimens aren't so promising, and the cost of extraction is going up, he said at length. I'll have a talk with Nairn when I get back, but in the meanwhile it looks as if we were going to have trouble with the water. "'It's a thing I've been afraid of for some time,' Salter answered. "'We can keep down any leakage that comes in through the rocks, though it means driving the pumps hard, but an inrush from the river would beat us.' Vane let the matter drop, and an hour later he retired to his wooden berth. In a few minutes he was fast asleep, but was awakened by a shrill note which he recognized as the whistle of the engine. It was sounding the alarm, and next moment he was struggling into his clothing. Then the door swung open, 
and Salter stood in the entrance, lantern in hand, with water trickling from him. There was keen anxiety in his expression. "'Flood's lapping the bank top now,' he said. "'There's a jam in the narrow place at the head of the rapid, and the water's backing up. I'm going along with the boys.' He vanished as suddenly as he had appeared, and Vane dragged on his jacket. If the mine were drowned, operations might be stopped for a considerable time. What was more, it would precipitate a crisis in the affairs of the company, and necessitate an increase of its capital, which he would sooner avoid. He was outside in less than a minute, and stood still, looking about him, while the deluge lashed his face and beat his clothing against his limbs. He could only make out a blurred mass of climbing trees on one side, and a strip of foam cutting through the black level which he supposed was water in front of him. His trained ears, however, gave him a little information, for the clamor of the flood was broken by a sharp snapping and crashing, which he knew was made by driftwood driving furiously against the boulders. In that region the river banks are encumbered here and there with great logs, partly burned by forest fires, reaped by gales, or brought down from the hillsides by falls of frost-loosened soil. A flood higher than usual sets them floating, and on subsiding sometimes leaves them packed in a gorge or stranded in a shallow to wait for the next big rise. Now they were driving down, and, as Salter had said, jamming at the head of the rapid. Suddenly a column of fierce white radiance leaped up lower downstream, and Vane knew that a big compressed air lamp had been carried to the spot where the driftwood was gathering. Even at a distance, the brightness of the glare dazzled him, so that he could see nothing else when he headed towards it. He collided with a fir stump and struck it with his knee, and in another minute the splashing about his feet warned him that he was entering the water. Having no wish to walk into the main stream, he floundered to one side. He was, however, getting nearer to the blaze, and by and by he made out a swarm of figures scurrying about beneath it. Some of them had saws or axes, for he caught the gleam of steel and broke into a run. And presently Carroll, whom he had forgotten, came up, calling to him. End of chapter 19 Recording by Roger Moline